Please turn with me, if you would, today to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 9. We are going to go back today uh, where we left off last time here in the, in the Gospel of John, and we're going to see uh, what happens with this young man whom we assume, I say young, we don't know for sure his age, but this man whom Jesus healed who had been blind since birth. And we're going to see how uh, the, the account here that John records continues to unfold to show us that there is life in Jesus, the Son of God, and particularly here today, uh, we see what happens, uh, if you could say it this way, when unbelief investigates a miracle as this account unfolds before us. We'll be in John chapter 9, verses 13 through 34, as we see the light of the world exposing unbelief. Follow along with me as we read. They brought him, who formerly was blind, to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked him, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him, we will, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciples, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard, unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Father, we thank you for this time we have set aside to read your word and study it together today. And we ask that as we look at these verses that communicate to us what happened almost 2,000 years ago, that the truth of the gospel would shine forth in our hearts once again. That you would show us Jesus Christ and him crucified, risen again, offering eternal life. 
And you would help us to see that in, in this, this account, as the unbelief of these men is exposed, that we too have no excuse before you. You shine the light of the gospel into our hearts, showing us who we truly are and showing us who you are and showing us our Savior, Jesus Christ. Today, Lord, would you encourage the hearts of your people? Would you help us uh, to uh, commit more and more to following and serving you with our lives? Would you draw us to yourself? Would you convict us of sin and help us to confess that? Lord, for those who may hear these things today who have not placed their faith in you, Lord, would you convict them of their sin once again? Show them Jesus Christ. Show them the hope of the gospel. Lord, we give you all the glory and the praise for what you will do here. In your name we pray. Amen. The longer you walk through life, the more you'll come to realize something. Truth always has its detractors. Do you agree? It doesn't matter how strong the evidence or how great the consequences of opposing that truth and being wrong are, you can always seem to find someone somewhere standing up against what is right and what is true. And sometimes you don't have to look very far. Such was the case in the day of Jesus. John's statement in John chapter 1, verse 11, is proven true time and again throughout his gospel where he says, He came, that is Jesus, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, came in human form through the nation of Israel just as God promised all the way back in the book of Genesis. Yet, He was rejected by them, though they had all the evidence they needed to know who he was. The light of the world, Jesus Christ, opened blinded eyes, giving literal light, as is in the case that we read last time in the first 12 verses of this chapter, to those who needed healing. But he also gave spiritual light to those who placed their faith in him. At the same time, the light of the world also blinded the eyes of spiritually, of those who refused to believe. There were many in Jesus' day who simply closed their hearts to him, and we see them once again displayed here. And as truth always does, it exposes the hearts and lives of those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. And what you see in these verses before us today is Jesus' identity as the light of the world exposes hearts of unbelief, leaving all without excuse before God. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the only hope of salvation. And Jesus and what he has done for you and who he is reveals who you are. And if you have not truly placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you you cannot stand before God and say, well, I didn't know or there was nothing to really know or how could I have known because Jesus Christ has come and the word of God has revealed him to us. And so let's look today at what happens now with this man who we talked about a couple weeks ago, whom Jesus has healed. This man was born blind, and the disciples had questions, and Jesus showed there that he he was going to do the works of God and, and display God's power and God's might before them in healing this man. 
But after this happens, there are many who are left with questions, and we see this all throughout the majority of the rest of this chapter here. And the first thing we see in verses 13 through 16 is we see the outspoken opposition to what has happened. And and initially here, there's an appeal now to the leadership in verses 13 and 14 because we see that that those who, who knew the man before, remember his neighbors had a hard time believing who this guy was, they now now wonder what has happened. And so... They have observed here a tremendous miracle, and yet the one who performed in such a credible thing is not there. And as we observed last time, the man who was healed doesn't even know who Jesus is, right? And as I said at the end of the last message, that even if they had took him along and said, hey, can you identify him? He was blind. He had no idea who Jesus was. He just knew that this man named Jesus had healed him, this man who had been blind since birth. And so, the people do what they feel is best. They appeal to their religious leaders. We see here in verse 13, they brought this man to the Pharisees. They wanted to see what they would say on the matter. Because what has taken place that this man has been healed certainly has a lot of theological implications. Don't you think it would be significant If someone was blind from birth, and everybody knew that guy was blind from birth, and all of a sudden, he sees, right? I mean, that that has some serious, not just medical things, I mean, there's on that side, but but seriously, there's some theological things going on, because this guy's going around saying, this guy, this man, Jesus, he healed me. And what's more, we're going to learn here that there are some strong opinions held by these religious leaders concerning Jesus and his followers. And it is here that we see a point of contention that will arise. In verse 14, we read, Now it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Jesus had made clay and used this as the means to heal this man. And that's not the the big part. The big part is the second part that was on the Sabbath day. Now the Sabbath day is the seventh day that God commanded in the Old Testament under that covenant of the law that people observed that as a day of rest and worship. They were to rest from their normal activities and worship the Lord. And the Pharisees and those like them had other regulations they had imposed upon the Sabbath day. And what Jesus had done had gone strictly against these things because their additions to the law of God prohibited kneading on the Sabbath day. That's kneading with a K, you know, K-N-E, like you knead bread or dough. And Jesus, by the way, violated that. You know how? He made clay, which means he had to knead the dirt. They also, by the way, forbid medical treatment unless it was a life threatening circumstance. So once again, Jesus has placed himself at odds with the Jewish religious leadership in his actions. However, it is not him or his actions that are in the wrong. He does these things to expose the hearts of those who are opposed to him. And certainly, we see the outspoken opposition regarding Jesus as this account continues. In verse 15, you have here the initial inquiry because the Pharisees also asked him again how he received his sight. He said to him, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. So now the Pharisees want to 
take stock of the situation, understand what's going on. And, and you notice here, the man's already given kind of a succinct, like, okay, here's what happened. You, you imagine at this point how many times he's probably told this story, right? People are asking him, what happened? And now he's like, okay, here's what's going on. Here's kind of the situation that Jesus did for me. He does not know more than what he shares here. That Jesus placed clay on his eyes, he washed, he believed what he was told, and his life was transformed as he received his sight. But even this shortened account is enough to show us the conclusions the Pharisees began to draw regarding Jesus. And in verse 16, you see here in this opposition that there are, there's, a divided, there's a divide that's, that's coming even in their own ranks. There's divided conclusions. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. So the verse 16 presents us with the reasoning and thinking of the Pharisees. They look at what's been done and they begin to draw their own conclusions. And even if they do, as they do so, we find that they are divided. And what's going to unfold here in these verses and then later on in this section is what we may call a battle of syllogisms. Now there's your, your big word for the day, a syllogism, Okay. A syllogism is just a, a device, it's a, it's a helpful way of understanding of what's going on here because it's a form of reasoning where a conclusion is drawn from two propositions or premises. You have a major premise and you have a minor premise and when something fits these premises then you draw this conclusion, okay? And I'm going to show you, I'm going to walk you through the passage here where we can see these syllogisms, these premises that are made and the reasoning that's followed. Now, the conclusion of a syllogism may or may not be valid depending on the reasons that you're following, right? Because the validity of the statements may not be true. As we read the first part of verse 16, we're met with the first of these syllogisms represented in the Pharisees' words here. And I've, I've read different versions of these, and so I've tried to, to pull out some of what I feel is the best wording of these syllogisms, the first one in verse 16, you could, you could word it like this. The major premise is this. All people who are from God keep the Sabbath. Okay? The minor premise is Jesus does not keep the Sabbath. And so the conclusion drawn from this is Jesus is not from God. Do you follow the reasoning there, right? Again, as flawed as one of the statements may be, you see the reasoning. That if you're from God, you're going to keep the Sabbath. Jesus does not keep the Sabbath, so therefore, Jesus is not from God. That's exactly what you see represented in the first part of verse 16 of chapter 9 in the Gospel of John. Jesus did not fall in line with the Pharisees' exacting burdens and did not embrace their extra-biblical standards. I want to make that very clear here, that he did not meet Whose standard? Their standard of righteousness. That's what they're saying. Therefore, he could not be from God. Clearly, Jesus' actions fall in line with exactly what God intended for the Sabbath day. Please understand that an act of mercy, healing one from a lifelong condition, is exactly something that God intended to happen on a Sabbath day. That does not go against what God had commanded his people. And even as part of this group is holding court on Jesus' actions, this man's, uh, on this, and this man's healing 
reasons that they should not embrace Jesus, another viewpoint in this court, court emerges. And we see that in the second half of verse 16. Because we see others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And so in the second part of verse 16, you have another syllogism. And the major premise is something like this. Only God can open blind eyes or only God can do such signs. The minor premise is Jesus opened the eyes of this man who was born blind or or Jesus did such a sign. So if only God can do such a sign and Jesus did such a sign, the conclusion is Jesus is from God. He can't be a sinner if he's done something that only God can do. And so while one group is focused on the Sabbath that in their minds has been violated, the other group is focused on the supernatural sign that Jesus has performed, and they're trying to reason it through with their human reasonings here, who, what side are we supposed to take? And at the same time, let us note that they're asking here, if Jesus is truly a sinner, could he really perform such a sign? And I want to note that word sign that John has used time and again, and it means a mark of authentication. That Jesus is who he says he is. That he is from God. So they ask the question, if he's really a sinner, could he do something like this? Could he really validate his claims? So this causes division amongst the group. Some are ready to condemn Jesus once again. Others are not quite convinced based on what they have observed. And so it seems then that that these divided groups come to an agreement. There's one thing we can agree on that we need to do. And that is this. They pester the witness. That's exactly what happens in the rest of this chapter. They just give this guy grief, and they ask him question after question after question, and it all comes from the same place. It comes from a heart of unbelief. And let's see what happens in verses 17 through 24 with the relentless questioning. So these guys can't agree on what has happened. So they, they, division has a question, and look what happens in verse 17. In verse 17, they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. So since they can't come to a decision and cannot refute the evidence in front of them, the Pharisees now turn back to the man who has been healed. They want to know his opinion on the matter. It's a very interesting thing, right? And and we could debate all day whether or not they're legitimately asking him or trying to embarrass this guy. But the the long and short of it is that they they couldn't come up with an answer, so they had to turn somewhere else, and they turned to the guy who experienced the miracle. They had to, at least for one group, try to find something they could use against Jesus. So the one who experienced the healing is their source, and they ask him, what is his assessment of Jesus? And we see here that this man is experiencing an even greater understanding of Jesus And is beginning to embrace him in faith. Because he plainly and simply declares Jesus to be a prophet. He has experienced a miracle in his life. And so his conclusion is that this must be someone from God. If he can do something like this. What he's doing here is he's equating Jesus with the Old Testament prophets. Who from time to time, you think of guys like Elijah and Elisha, would perform miracles. And the word prophet here is key. It's communicating what side this man is on. He is of the opinion, we can see from the very beginning here, that this is not a sinner. This is someone who is from God. And at this point in time, he may not 
have faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life, but he's beginning to develop this, okay, this is who Jesus is. He's experienced this in his life. This is not the answer and the information the opponents hope to receive. And so they press the attack. And in verses 18 through 23, we have what I call the parental interrogation. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight and they asked them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? So despite the evidence before them and the testimony of the man, by the way, that they called for and they asked his opinion, the opponents of Jesus now take a different approach trying to undermine this man's story. They conclude now that this whole thing is a fraud. He is not in He is indeed not the man who has been born blind. He is someone else. In essence here, here's the thinking. This sinful Jesus has pulled a fast one on us. He went out and found another guy who looks like this guy, and they switched places, right? I mean, this is the old prince and the pauper thing, right? Now, that was like way before that was written, okay? So don't read that back into the text, okay? This is the whole thing, right? They switched. And so they said, you know, here's what we'll do. We'll go and find this guy's parents. And they do. They bring him in. And they ask them, right, is this the one? This is this, is this your son? Because while it is possible that others may have misidentified this man, his parents surely will know the truth. And so there are two questions here. Number one, is this truly your son who was born, and was he really born blind, right? And two, if it is, and he was born blind, how does he now see? The first question, we notice that the parents answer directly. They say, we know this is our son and that he was born blind. There is no doubt that this is the one whom they have raised and he was truly born blind. There is no trickery. There's no deception. There's no mistake. This is an act that he was putting on. So because they answered the first question that way, they have to answer the second question, right? See, if it wasn't their son, they don't have to answer. But now that they're put in a spot where they have to answer the second question, is how did this happen? And you notice here, this is a question they avoid answering and ultimately they lie about. They say here in verse, uh, keep, keep going in verse 21, but by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. They say they don't know how he's been healed or who healed him. And I say that that's a lie because he's told everybody who healed him. I mean, he's told everybody by what means Jesus gave him his sight. Instead, they call on the Jews to ask their son. They use this phrase, he is of age. In this culture, by the way, that would be applicable to anyone over the age of 13, that they would answer for themselves or not under their parents' protection or in their home. They said, okay, he's, he's old enough. You ask him, he'll tell you the story. And in verses 22 and 23, we learn why they respond this way. We see his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that, anyone, that if anyone confessed that he, that is Jesus, was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. These, these two parents, the, the, the mom and the dad here, are, are filled with fear. Because the tenor of the religious, religious leadership of Israel regarding Jesus is now known. That anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Christ 
would be excommunicated. Right here, we talk about how they would be thrown out of the synagogue. Literally, the, the word is they would be unsynagogued, is the way you could say it. And this means they would be put under a ban and a curse. And that banishment would have religious and social ramifications. They would really be considered a pariah in their community there in Israel. They would suffer shame and reproach and even financial ramifications because they were not allowed to associate with the synagogue, with the temple, those sorts of things. So therefore, what do they do? Well, they pass the buck, right? They don't want to answer the questions. They don't want to say what they've been told. So they say, just ask him, let him tell you. Because they're not willing to place their faith in Jesus and be associated with him. That's really what's going on here. So they let him speak for himself by himself. And so now in verse 24, with no more fire from the parents, you know, no more fuel for the fire, the Jews have to go back to the man who's been healed. And in verse 24, we see what they're trying to do. They're trying to force their opinion on this man. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. So what they're going to do in this latest tactic is they're going to try to force this man into serving their own agenda. You read that phrase there, give God the glory. This is not them calling him back in and saying, hey, let's have a testimony service, okay? You take the mic and you praise God for what he's done in your life. That's not, that's not what they're doing. This is a charge. This is almost like an oath, okay? If you remember in Joshua chapter 7, uh, when Achan stole the, the gold out of the city of Jericho, and God punished the people for that because they didn't, Joshua and the leadership didn't go before God, and, then, and God revealed that it was Achan who had sinned. If you went back there, you would find a similar charge. Joshua says to Achan, give God the glory. It's a, you need to tell the truth, right? That's what they're doing here. What they're doing is they're saying, you, before God, need to tell the truth. In verse 24, this man is a sinner. We know he's not from God, so you need to testify. You see what they're trying to do? They're trying to force their opinion on this man. They're seeking to intimidate him into serving their plans. By the way, this is what selfish or self-righteous people do. Often they, they seek to flex their spiritual muscle in an effort to make their ways come to fruition. That's exactly what they were doing. They, by, by keeping the law, the Pharisees, uh, looked at themselves as superior to everyone else. And so, therefore, they sought to flex that spiritual muscle and say, okay, you're going to fall in line and you're going to do what we tell you to do. But this man is not made of the same stuff that his parents are made of. And we see what happens in verses 25 through 29. We see unbelief's scorn that comes out. And it comes from what we see here in verse 25 this testimony. He answered and said, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know that though I was blind, now I see. This is the transformed testimony of this young man, that this man, who in his own opinion has no authority on spiritual matters, that's what he says in verse 25, I don't have the authority to make these judgments. He does not seek his own glory or prestige in his declaration. He doesn't even shy away from these religious leaders. Notice here, he is not intimidated. He instead states the simple, honest truth of what he has experienced. He is not interested in their biased agendas, but in declaring the truth of what he has experienced. That He is not going to make a choice on the morality and dependability of Jesus. He is just going to report what has happened. 
The truth is, I was blind, and now I see. This is what's happened in my life. My whole life, I haven't seen anything. And Jesus came, probably at this point, it was, it was the day before, a couple days before. It wouldn't have been on the Sabbath day. And now I see. He healed me. That's an event you can't ignore. That's a sign with ramifications. He may not know the status of Jesus or feel equipped to make such declarations about him, but what he does know is what he's experienced firsthand. And now the questions fly in verses 26 and 27. You see the unbelieving irony that happens. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? So once again, we see the same questions from the religious leaders concerning this man's miraculous healing. They ask him again why he was, how he was healed. And we wonder, why do they continue to ask? Well, there's a couple things. Perhaps they hoped their intimidation, intimidation tactics would, again, just force him into giving, him, giving them the answer they wanted. Or perhaps they wanted to see if he would tell the story the same way every time or if he would give them some evidence to prove that his story wasn't really true. They're continuing to look for ammunition ultimately against Jesus. That's who they're looking to to go after. And they would stop at nothing to find any shred or scrap to hurl at Jesus and his work. And here we learn in verse 27 just how bold this man is. In verse 27, you can almost hear the exasperation in this guy's voice. I mean, he's done. Can we just say it? He's done with this, right? And though... He's been physically blind his entire life. Do not count this man as naive or as some dummy, okay? He knows very well what's going on, okay? He's, he's, he knows the tenor of these men. He knows what they're trying to do. He's seen his parents duck out, right? And first, he simply states that he will not be sharing them with them any information he's already given them. Do you see that? He says, look. I've told you already and you did not listen. I'm not going to tell you again. Because he understands what they're doing. They're not trying to seek to, to any, any real belief in Jesus Christ. They're just looking to set him up. He's heard it from him. They've heard it from his parents. And they're not listening. So how will telling them again make a difference? His testimony stands and it speaks for itself. And now the man poses a question to them. And again, I don't want us to assume this man is naive. Some look at this Throughout the year and say, I mean, this guy's had no idea. He was asking a question. No, I, this question that he asked in verse 27, if we can say it this way, is dripping with sarcasm. And it is used very effectively, right? I heard some of you chuckle when I read that a couple of times. I mean, it, it kind of makes you like, wow, this guy, man, he, he's going after him, right? He says, do you also want to be his disciples? The Pharisee's position on Jesus isn't hidden. It's a rhetorical question this man asks. And if you go back to the Greek, it expects a negative response. He wonders if they long to hear the story again that they too may become Jesus' disciples. And I think it is fantastically ironic to read, do you also want to become his disciples? These Pharisees, in their attempts to undermine this man and and plaster Jesus as a sinner, have just entrenched him further and further into who, who he believes Jesus is. 
And he now boldly confronts their attacks. This man was not afraid of what he was coming to realize. Jesus is someone to be trusted. Now, he may not have yet placed saving faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to look at that next week. And he did not understand all the reasons why Jesus came, but he knew what Jesus had done for him in his life, and that was enough. He was not intimidated by the religious leader's words or their threats, unlike his parents. Instead, he stands up to them. I love it. The way one pastor put it, he said this. He was not intimidated by their robes and their phylacteries, by the fringes of their garments, or by the rest of their religious paraphernalia. He had never seen clothes of any kind until now. That was a very good statement. The things in our lives that make us fear other people, right? He's not worried about that. He's not worried about how high and mighty, how self-righteous they are. He's not worried about their opinions. He's concerned with the truth. And the truth is, Jesus healed him. And his boldness is a great example for us today. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have no need to fear any man. If you are secure in him, there is nothing and no one that can take that away. And you can stand before those who mock, who jeer, who jest, and question with the boldness of Jesus Christ. Because his security of your soul leads you to boldness in the face of scrutiny. Now, that boldness need not lead you to rudeness. There is a line there, my friend. That many have done damage for the message of the gospel because they scream in the faces of the don't know him and say, well, I'm just standing up for God. No, my friend, you're not you can stand in confidence in Jesus Christ and give the truth in love. Because at the end of the day, it's not about you and me. It's about him. And there is nothing these Pharisees can find to bring down on Jesus. And so these attacks now turn very personal. In verses 28 and 29, you see the reactionary attacks that take place. Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. So once again, frustration, anger, and vehemence pour out of these men. They cannot refute the truth, and that enrages them. That this man, a blind beggar his entire life until Jesus healed him, has frustrated them at every turn, convicting them with his testimony. And so once again, they turn their attacks away from the truth and to the man who is giving the truth. John tells us here that the word we have in our English translation is that the Pharisees reviled this man. That word literally carries the idea of insultingly abusing someone when you're speaking to them with your words. This is not a, hey, you're wrong about that, buddy. This is a, we got something personal now. And this is personal. These men take the attitudes they have towards Jesus and now apply them to, their, to, this, to, to, the, to the man who's standing in front of them. In their rage, they point the self-righteous finger at this man and declare the thing that they consider to be the worst. You are his disciple. Because he asked the question, right? Do you also want to become his disciple? They say, in their piousness, we are Moses' disciples. We would never follow a sinner like Jesus. 
We are loyal to the one who gave us the law of God, which we steadfastly follow and add to and seek eternal life from. But what they failed to comprehend is that the man they claimed to follow will be the same one who would condemn them. Because the law of God given through Moses shows you and me this, we have a sin problem. And there's nothing we can do to fix it on our own. We need a Savior. The law of God given through Moses would be the standard by which they miss the mark of God's expectations and thus the standard of judgment that, that would decide their eternal fate should they reject Jesus. They knew that God had spoken to Moses, but they refused to listen to Jesus. This outcast sinner, they don't know about him. They don't know where he is from or by whose authority he spoke. We say, well, why is that? Because of their own willful ignorance and blindness. We have studied the book of John. John has, Jesus had countless interactions probably so far with the, with the religious leadership of Israel. He's testified of his own self, who he is, where he's from. But again, as one pastor put it, they were far more blind spiritually than the man standing before them had ever been physically. And we see here the developing faith, this formerly blind man growing yet again. And once again, those investigating the work of Jesus will deny the truth. As we look at the last point today, and we see unbelief's denial in these last few verses, in verses 30 through 34. In verses 30 through 33, we see the sound statement of this man. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This man's faith is absolutely incredible to me. Because he declares his faith simply and clearly once again in verses 30 through 33. And in verse 33, I'm sorry, verse 30, that statement is just undeniably devastating. And he says, um, why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. That's, that's a rebuttal to what they said in verse 29. We don't know who he is. He goes, basically, how could you not know? Right? Jesus had opened his eyes, healing him from a lifelong condition, yet they cannot understand where he is from. That is truly hardness of heart. And here's where the syllogisms come back in, okay? This is the last one we see, the last syllogism we see today comes from this man. And over those 31, 32, and 33, this is where you can kind of develop that reasoning, okay? The major premise of what this man says is this. Only people who are from God and do his will are heard by God so they can open the eyes of those born blind. I'll read it to you again, okay? Only the people who are from God and do his will are heard by God so they can open the eyes of those born blind. The minor premise, this man, Jesus, was heard by God so that he opened the eyes of one born blind, a miracle that until this point was unheard of, right? And so the conclusion is, this man is from God. Because if he was not, he could do nothing. So he is definitely, therefore, not a sinner. Quite frankly, folks, he's beaten them at their own game. But they have come up with all these reasons, all these things, and we're not really sure what to believe. And he says, look, here's, here's the facts. Here's what happened. Here's what we know to be true from Scripture. Here's what to be true from my life. So here's the truth of Jesus. 
He's taken all the pieces and put them together. The sign that Jesus performed on him has grown his faith. As we have said time and again, and we have observed, miracles do not create faith. But they do build, encourage, and strengthen faith. This man's faith has certainly been growing even in the face of adversity here. Because, you know, one of the things you'll find is that adversity often strengthens your faith. I just had a conversation the other day with someone, uh, my dental hygienist of all places. You know, gospel opportunities are everywhere, by the way, okay? But it's interesting, you know, when they find out you're a pastor, you know, she says, I want to pick your brain about something. That's always good, right? And uh, she's a a believer, she presses to, to know Jesus Christ, and so she says, I've been doing a Bible study with somebody, and I want to ask you about this and that and this, and this is a statement she made to me. You know, uh, we're never going to see eye to eye. This, this other person was in a, steeped in a religion where they, they believe certain things about the Bible that aren't true and, and couldn't be convinced, right? They had taken Scripture out of context and had been drilled in their head time after time after time. She said, she and I were never going never to agree because this is what the Bible says and this is what she said, but I will tell you this. It made me really dig in and learn my faith a little more. Adversity grows our faith, friends. You look around the world and see places and countries where the gospel is not free to go forward. Guess what? There is a strong church presence in those countries because adversity grows our faith. And when you face adversity in your life as a Christian, it can strengthen your faith. cause you to dig deep into the word of God because that's where we need to go. It shows us, the adversity that we face in our lives shows us the power of God and it helps us to run to him. Jesus is from God, he is God, and therefore he can do all things. That logic is sound. Those statements are true. That conclusion this man made is godly. And the Pharisees, beaten at their own game, now have a reaction in verse 34 that ends their interaction with this man. It's a vicious dismissal. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. So once again, as I have mentioned, I think a couple weeks ago, the ad hominem is the attack of choice where they attack the man directly. They deride this man and they call him here one who was completely born in sins. They are implying what the disciples questioned about Jesus about in the healing account. If you remember at the beginning of this account, the disciples said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Ironically, when they say that, by the way, that you were completely born in sins, they are confirming that he was born blind and he has been healed, which they tried to deny earlier by pulling the parents up. They don't want to be taught by such a man, they state. And so they take the action that his parents had feared. We read here, they cast him out. He is excommunicated from the synagogue and will suffer the ramifications that come with this action. And sadly, though, it is the Pharisees who are mistaken and in the wrong. They are the ones who have denied the Son of God. They have missed their own need of the Savior. They had the truth, but they didn't accept it. The evidence for who Jesus is and why he came is piling up. And their hearts are hardened against the truth. And therefore, the Holy Spirit does not open their blinded eyes. But that does not mean they were not exposed. 
Jesus, the light of the world, is the revealer of our hearts. Those who reject him do not get a pass. Instead, they will have to answer. If these men did not turn, they one day answered for their sin. And so I implore and urge you that if you have not turned to Jesus Christ, to turn to the light of the world, to embrace him for salvation and stand up for him in a world of darkness. Because Jesus' identity as the light of the world exposes hearts of unbelief, leaving all without excuse before God. When unbelief investigates a miracle, these are the results that we read today. Endless questionings, narrative twisting, forced opinions, personal attacks, and unprovable accusations are the norm for hearts that are full of rejection. The light of the world inevitably blinds some who are exposed to him. Others, like this man who was healed, are drawn to the light. This man has made trackable progress in his faith. and He may not have yet professed Christ as Savior and Lord, but he certainly recognized Jesus for who he is. And next time, we're going to see his personal encounter of faith in Jesus at the end of this chapter. We see this man's boldness, and it should challenge us that in a dark and hostile world, Christians will be called on to stand up for their faith. And you as a Christian will face marginalization, persecution, rejection, and more just because you have faith in Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, you can stand up to the rejection, the jeering, and the ramifications of your faith. It's not because of you, it's because of him. And today, at the beginning of our service, we have heard the testimonies of several who in a few minutes will follow the Lord and believers' baptism. They did not do this to be saved from their sin, but to declare to you, I have placed my personal faith in Jesus Christ. They want you to know that they have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, and they want you to know that they are not ashamed of that. And they want you to know that if you do not know Jesus Christ, you can know him too. They desire to obey God because they belong to God in Jesus Christ. The light of the world exposes unbelieving hearts. At the same time, it calls on hearts to believe. Jesus calls for your faith, your trust, and your commitment to him. And he will save you from your sin and empower you to live for him today. Father, we thank you for what you have shown us in your word today. We thank you for preserving these things for us to read. We thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit that we may understand these things. And we thank you for what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Lord, we ask today that you would do your work in our hearts. To one who is here today or hears this message and has not truly placed faith in you, would you not give them rest? Lord, would you convict them of their sin? Show them their need of you. To the Christian, Lord, would you continue to convict of sins that they may have allowed into their lives? into the way they have not embraced who you are and what you have called them to do. And Lord, we ask that ultimately, above all, you would receive the honor and the glory from our lives today. Lord, we pray now as we close our service, you help us to rejoice with those who have come to follow you in believer's baptism. 
that you would make this a good day in your house, and we may leave today full of wonder, love, and praise for you, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.